Well, we are going to talk about the ministry pillars and what we believe determines what we do and how we live. This is true for Christians and it's true for everyone on the planet. A person's life provides a testimony for what they believe, a living testimony to what they prioritize. Our lives are always reflecting something. For Christians, the truths that God has allowed us to see from the scriptures are a vital foundation. And they're so important that when you go to visit a church website, one of the first things that you'll see on most church websites is a statement of faith, right? Or a doctrinal statement of what they believe. Why do they post that? They post it because what they believe, their orthodoxy, will determine their orthopraxy. It's going to determine what they're going to do and what the ministries are all about at that church. And so for Cornerstone Bible Church, it is no different. We have a doctrinal statement of faith that says the following. We believe the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative Word of God and that it is sufficient for salvation and godliness. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, you can give hearty amens after. Okay, the, the next thing on our doctrinal statement, we believe that there is one God eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe in the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ, his virgin birth, his sinless life, his miracles, his vicarious and atoning death, his bodily resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and his personal return in power and glory. We believe that all men are lost sinners and dead in transgression. We believe that only by the gracious regeneration by the Holy Spirit can a man turn to Christ in repentance and believe in his name for salvation. We believe that man is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We believe in the ministry, the present ministry of the Holy Spirit, by whose indwelling every Christian is enabled to live a godly life. And finally, we believe in the resurrection of both the saved and the lost, the saved to eternal life with Christ and the lost to eternal punishment in hell. And our church said, Amen. Amen. Our statement of faith provides a foundation for all that we do at our church. And when I was uh, candidating as one of the pastoral candidates at the church, it's one of the first things I looked to. And I was greatly encouraged. Why? Because uh, we aligned very well. And it serves as a foundation. And our foundation is always on Christ. It's on the gospel and the full counsel and the sufficiency of the word. And if our foundation is compromised in any way theologically, then there's a good reason to be fearful. And Christ grants us insight into an important principle that he spells out in Luke chapter 6, 47-49, where he says, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug, a deep, who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock, and when the flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been 
well built. But the one who has heard and who has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed. And the ruin of that house was great. Lord features a very important principle for us. The spiritual foundation that is provided by His instruction can be applied to our individual lives and it can be applied to our corporate lives as well. A solid theological foundation must exist. A firm foundation of sound theology. Salvation rooted in the true biblical gospel and a biblically prescribed sanctification is what allows a church to stand and to glorify our Lord. And just like a physical building or just like the building of a house, right? Once it's set, okay, that allows the structure to be built. Then you have something to build upon. And this Sunday marks the beginning of a four-week series that will focus on our ministry pillars of our church. And it's my hope, and it's also the hope of the elders, that the series is going to help us understand the purpose of our church and why these pillars are vital to the progress of the ministries. And your bulletin has these listed for you, and I also briefly introduced them in the equipping hour this morning, but our sermon series is going to allow us to zero in on them specifically. The pillars are as followers, following for those who may not have been with us this morning. The first one is this, praising God with passion, preaching and teaching with precision, praying with fervency, progressing in evangelism and discipleship. And there's no order there. That's just the happen, that just happens to be the way that they were listed, right? In, in the same way that I'll even draw your attention to the pillars that, ironically, four pillars that are right here in this room, right? That, that are holding the structure up for us, right? There's no order, right? They, they don't go in this order, right? They all work together. They're all important to uplift. And the word pillar is a fitting term to describe these philosophical aspects of ministry. Webster defines a pillar as a firm, upright support for a superstructure. And the church is a massive superstructure. Yet we know without a foundation, it doesn't matter how well the structure is built. It doesn't matter what the philosophy might be. We take the floor out from beneath of us, right? We have nothing. We got nothing to stand on. And that is why it's so important to start with the what of ministry the foundation of what we believe and what God has taught us and instructed us about Himself and about the nature and the work of ministry. There was a PowerPoint that I showed earlier that uh, described a building, but I think the pillars in the room serve just as well as the PowerPoint. And so we're going to study one of the pillars today, and the first one that is up to bat is Praising God with passion. And I want us to wrap our arms around this pillar 
and see the significance of it. And so to do that, I've mapped out four considerations, and they're in your bulletin for you. And we're going to talk about our definition for praising, our basis for praising, our expressions for praising, and our passion for praising. They're right there in the notes. And we're going to start with the first consideration, which is this, our definition of praising. And I had this uh, printed in the bulletin as well. Praising is the activity of glorifying God in his presence with our voices and hearts. And this definition is also printed in our philosophy of ministry, which we work through as an elder team. And it's also going to be available on our website. And if you would like a personal copy of this, you can email me at any point in time, by the way, and I'll, I'll gladly send it to you. And though the, ta- the, the terms praise and worship are often used interchangeably, in this instance, I do think making a distinction is helpful. And I, I want to explain why. Praising God through music and song is a subset of our entire lives of worship, okay? So praising God through uh, vocal expression, through physical expression, and uh, with with our hearts and with song is a subset of lives of worship. And Paul points this out in Romans 12.1 when he says, I exhort you, brethren, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, right? He, it goes on to say, which is your spiritual service of worship. And so Paul's point was that there's uh, something about our worship that um, wraps itself around the entirety of who we are, okay? We're called to live lives of worship. And so I'm not splitting hairs here. And if our praise team wants to be called a worship team or worship team wants to be a pro- called a praise team, I don't have any, I don't have any problems with that. What I, what I was featuring this for is just as we work through, um, just for our, our help that we're, today, that we're zeroing in on the aspect of praise ministry. We're talking about it being a pillar of our church when we sing songs to the glory of God. So worship in the broad sense is also even evident when we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay? There's other aspects of worship, but we're, we're zeroing in sp- specifically on praise, on the corporate aspect of singing and praising God in our ministry settings. And our definition of praise implies that it's an activity we engage in when our hearts are intentional and focused. It also recognizes the fact that we're in God's presence while directing our complete attention to Him. And corporate gatherings provide the church with a unique opportunity. They really do. A unique opportunity to praise God from the heart, singing songs to Him and playing instruments for Him. And the words and lyrics that are used should reflect truth and the spirit of God's people should be focused and intentional. And I think we can even draw a principle uh, from Christ in John 4.23 when our Lord says, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. And this balanced view was provided also in a a book that um, I was able to look through by Bob Coughlin, who leads the praise ministry for Sovereign Grace Ministries. And Bob Coughlin uh, shared this in his book entitled Worship Matters, the importance of having a balance between the head and the heart, and here is how he expressed it. When we helped start a church in Charlotte, North Carolina, we often heard the same complaint from visitors. It went like this. There are two kinds of churches in town. The first loves expository preaching, Bible study, and theology, but there's no life. People seem cold and unaffected by the teaching. The second kind is warm and friendly and sings passionately, but there's no truth. Scriptures are, not, scriptures are often taken out of context and spontaneity is everything. Obviously, I knew people were exaggerating. But churches can have a hard time connecting the knowledge of the mind with the passions of the heart, yet they're integrally related and both are crucial. And so I believe that our praise definition provides a, a proper balance and I really want us to grasp this definition because I believe it will serve us well as we consider what it means that our ministries will be upheld by praising God with passion and why it's going to be a pillar for our church. And so zeroing in on that definition first, praising God is an activity. It involves planning. It involves preparations that are made. And we're so blessed to have a team that bears that responsibility week after week. It also involves singing and active participation. We're going to have a chance to talk more about that later in the message when we consider the Bible and what it says about the numerous ways that we have to express our worship and praise to God. My heart was so uplifted when I saw all the different expressions in the Scriptures. And we'll get to survey them a little bit later. Secondly, our praise involves glorifying God. We direct our praise to God as we glorify Him for many things, and we'll flesh this out under our next point when we get to the basis for praising. And thirdly, our passion for praising is enhanced when we corporately acknowledge His presence with our voices and our hearts. And there's something special that happens when God's people gather together to acknowledge Him simultaneously. It's a unique experience. And I'm sharing this with the elders. That if you're a believer for 10 years, and there's 52 weeks in a year, you do the math, you have 520 Sundays in those 10 years, and of course you're going to be sick, traveling, vacation, downtime, there's going to be plenty of times that you're not, occasions that you're not going to make it. That over the course of 10 years, that you might have, if you're fortunate, you might have 500 opportunities to gather corporately to worship the Lord. 20 years, double it. Less than 1,000. 40 years, double it. Less than 2,000. And it doesn't, you know, initially that might seem like a lot, but when we think about it, it really isn't a lot. And so there's, there's a reason that we want to focus on it. There's a reason that we want to make sure that we serve the Lord um, and, and offer the best possible worship that we can provide. It is powerful, and it should be. 
And so when we put this all together, we get our working definition for praising. Praising is the activity of glorifying God in His presence with our voices and hearts. Our definition is going to be solidified as we look at the remaining considerations. And the second consideration is our basis for praising. So why should praising God be a pillar for our church? It's a fair question, and we should have an answer for it. Think about it for a moment. Collectively, all of the songs that have ever been written over the, the, the course of the, the, the birth of the church in the last 2,000 years, all the songs that have been written to praise God. Unbelievable. We're talking tens of thousands of songs. And God burdened people in specific ways to write lyrics and music that exalts Him. And it would be impossible to compile a list of reasons because there are so many ways that He has blessed us physically and spiritually. Right? We get that. And I think it's exactly why we're going to need an eternity to praise Him. Yet the Scriptures do provide a basis for us and there are two broad bases that surface in one book of the Bible that thematically is centered on praising God, and it's the Psalms. The Psalms serve us well because their focus is on praise, and they help us to see these two bases for our praise. Okay, The first one is this, the person of God, and the second one is the works of God. I think you've sensed by now this morning that we're not having a traditional message, right? We're we're not rallying around one text of Scripture and had a, a chance to even talk to somebody before the service that this truly is a, a topical message as we consider praising God with passion. But I want to talk about the person of God. And God's person is described at great length in the Psalter and in the other books of the Bible. And there are two different attributes or characteristics many in the room are familiar with. They're called His incommunicable and communicable attributes. Incommunicable attributes are aspects of God's character that He does not share or communicate entirely with us. Okay, God is omniscient. God fully knows Himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. In 1 John 3.20 provides us with the reality that God knows everything. And this includes His extensive knowledge of us, as Psalm 139.16 shares, Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. He is omniscient, and because of this, we get to praise Him. God is omnipotent and sovereign. He is all-powerful. And nothing, nothing is outside His decreed control. And the prophet Jeremiah shared this in chapter 32, verse 17, where he says, nothing is too hard for you. And the angel Gabriel, you'll recall when he showed up to speak to Mary in the first chapter of Luke, he said, with God, nothing will be impossible and then our Lord in Matthew 19, 26 said, With God all things are possible. Nothing is outside of His control. And because He's omnipotent, 
And because he is sovereign, we get to worship him. Well, God also provides uh, some communicable attributes. And the incommunicable attributes are really um, a challenge for us and our finite thinking to, to, to wrap our minds around them. And no matter how hard we try, we'll never be able to fully communicate or comprehend them. They are incommunicable because God did not fully communicate them with us, yet they allow us to praise Him and celebrate the awesome reality of who God is. Well, there are some communicable attributes that help us, and rather than, I won't have time, time won't allow for us to uh, spell these out uh, or to, to look at them individual, individually, but I'll just mention them. His truthfulness, His faithfulness, His goodness, His love, His mercy, His grace, His patience, His long-suffering, His righteousness, His justice, His jealousy, His wrath. These are communicable attributes that also provide a basis for our praise. And oftentimes, I think that they resonate with us because we understand them at, uh, at our level, right? We get them. We see them played out in our lives. We, we have a greater connection to those attributes. Well, I want to share something that I believe is significant as we consider the communicable and incommunicable attributes of God as the object of our faith, okay? As the object of our faith increases, right? In diameter and in depth, right? As it increases, something happens. We're able to increase in the breadth and the depth of our praise and our worship. A great view of Him strengthens a great praise of Him. It really does. It really does. And so, we want to see God for who He is. We want to um, know Him personally. And the Scriptures allow us to learn about Him, both in incommunicable ways as well as ways that we can understand and communicate entirely. Well, I also want to talk to you about a third consideration, which is in your notes, the works of God. Okay? There's a, a second basis for praising God in Scripture, and it is this, the works of God. Actually, we're still under the, the second consideration. I'm sorry. Um, I know I have that listed as the third. I'm sorry. But I, I want us to start as at the most basic level. Okay, Why God even created us and, and the world in which we live. And Revelation 4.11 says this, Worthy are you our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. And 
Psalm 148 is another example of how all creation is summoned, is summoned to praise God. And here's a quick survey of Psalm 148. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise the Lord from the earth, you sea monsters in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and frost, stormy wind fulfilling His command, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, kings of the earth and all peoples. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His glory is above earth and heaven. And creation is called to praise God. And Psalm 150 even expresses it this way. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Yet God's Word also teaches us about the reality that we live in a fallen and broken world. And though everything is commanded to praise Him, Due to unbelief, due to suppression of the truth in unrighteousness. As elders, we've got to hear a great message from Al Mohler, who broke down Romans 1 for us. And he talked about this great exchange that has been made in one of the verses that he featured for us. Romans 1.25 says that fallen mankind has exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. And Romans 1, 18-31 really offers a glimpse of the world in which we live today and all of humanity would have no capacity whatsoever, and this was his point that he was sharing with us, to praise God unless God intervened to provide His righteousness in salvation. And that's why the Verses, preceding verses before 118 through 31, Paul even talks about not being ashamed of the gospel. Our salvation is foundational to praising God. And this is true from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Listen to just a, these two Old Testament passages on how salvation serves as a basis for praise. Psalm 96, verses 1 and 2 says, Sing. To the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. And the nation of Israel had the opportunity to do that. They recognized. They saw God's faithfulness and the righteousness that only He could provide. It was the only way that they could... that anyone could be able to stand in His presence. In Psalm 98, verses 1 and 2, it says this, O sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done wonderful things. His right hand and His holy arm have gained the victory for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. And the basis of praise continues right into the New Testament through the Gospel ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Bob Coughlin said it this way when directing praise to God and the Gospel, again in his book, Worship Matters, we don't help people simply by telling them, sing it like you mean it, or let's celebrate. Our goal is to direct people's gaze <clears throat> toward God's glory in Christ, moving our church in a greater expressiveness that's not rooted in a clear view of God's glory as revealed in the Gospel will hinder, not help, true praise and worship. 
And I couldn't agree more. And we want to be Christ-centered. And we want to be gospel-focused when we gather to worship our Lord. It's because of His righteousness and His salvation that He has given to us. In Ephesians 1, 5 and 6, it says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace. And then it picks back up in verse 11. It's like a skipping record in Ephesians 1. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things out after the counsel of His will. Verse 12, to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. Continues in the New Testament. In speaking to unity in Romans 15, the Apostle Paul cites Psalm 117 in Romans 15, verse 11, where we're reissued the command to praise, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise Him. And because of God's work in salvation, because of the Gospel, we get to praise Him. Well, so far we've only covered creation and salvation. We haven't mentioned God's work in protecting us. We haven't mentioned God's work in preserving us and allowing us to persevere in this life. God's work in sustaining all of the earth. God's work in our sanctification. God's future work in our glorification. All of it serves as a basis for us to praise Him. All of it. And the goal of mentioning the basis for praising God was to make sure that we're captured by the person of God and that we're captured by the works of God. And earlier I mentioned that as the object of our faith, God Himself increases in diameter and depth. Our praise can grow in diameter and depth. And I believe the same is true as we reflect on the works of God. The works of God in salvation, the works of God in creation, a high view of His works strengthens our praise for the One who has accomplished it. He's done it. And it's awesome. It's awesome because God is awesome. And so we've considered the definition of praising God and we have considered the basis for praising God. But let's talk a little bit, and this is where it gets pretty practical, our expressions for praising God. And I want us to take a brief, a brief look at two different expressions that the Bible speaks of. There are musical expressions and there are physical expressions. By musical expressions, I'm actually referring to instruments that are played, not necessarily the genre or the style of music itself, Scripture doesn't expand on the style so much as it speaks to the vast variety of instruments that can be played. And the landscape of instruments used in worship stems from pianos and organs in some churches all the way to full-out orchestras and even to full rock bands, right, that gather to lead in worship. And this is 
a sensitive topic for a lot of churches. And personally, I want to just say I am so thankful, so thankful to the Lord that I ended up at a church that wasn't organ only. Okay? Can I just say that? I just, I mean, paw on the drums! You rocked it this morning, and we need that brother on the drums every week. He is just such a blessing. I mean, uh, I just, I, I'm so thankful to be at a church where we, we see, we, we see beyond, all right? We're, and and, and, I, and, and you can, I, can, I can roll with some organ every now and then, okay? But I, I'm okay with that. But I, I just have appreciated the variety, and ironically, the scriptures are on our side because there is so much variety that is offered and it's profound when we see what God's Word shares. Music seems to be the major way to praise God, particularly when His people gather for corporate worship. And this is seen very clearly as we survey the Old Testament. And praise came from a wide assortment of sources, from a 4,000-piece um, orchestra in First Chronicles 23.5 to a 10-string harp in Psalm 33.2. Okay? Specific instruments, as we look at the Old Testament, included cymbals, the lyre and harp, okay, which was one and the same instrument. We see that word, right? And it's the, the, the lyre and harp, it's the same instrument. And um, that's, those are mentioned in Psalm 43, 71, 98, 147, 149, Psalm 71, 150, cymbals in Ezra 310, Psalm 150. And then we have the timbrel, okay? which was basically a tambourine. And what was interesting and what I, I found somewhat ironic was that the timbrel was actually viewed negatively in the ancient Near East because um, the tambourines were used at the temple of Baal uh, around the temple, and so they were kind of frowned upon. And in many ways, I think that's what happens with the drums today, right? I think there are associations that some churches make that there's an association with, um, you know, music that, uh, secular music that, you know, that, that somehow um, there's just a negative association made. Um, trumpets were also used. Pipes or flutes are also mentioned. String instruments. Um, the harp and lyre, I already mentioned those. And the worship of God in the Old Testament was accompanied by a variety of instruments. And this is good for us to see. But what's ironic is that there's very little mentioned in the New Testament about instruments specifically. But it is assumed that they're um, actively involved because the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs were encouraged uh, to embrace, like in Ephesians 5.19 and the Spirit-filled life, it, they imply that musical instruments remained an important part of praising God. And so musical instruments are an expression of worship. And I wish that I played something. I tried the guitar uh, and was defeated. In fifth grade, I tried the clarinet. Didn't happen. Just, just didn't happen. And so for, for all our brothers and sisters who are gifted to, to play, we... We are encouraged um, by the way that the Lord has gifted you. And it's a unique opportunity that you have to express worship. And so if you are someone who can play an instrument, and maybe it's the, the violin, maybe it's some other instrument, 
we, we, we want to find ways. We want to find avenues to have you share that worship with us and to, to bring that to the Lord. Very practical. Well, the Bible also talks about physical expression or expressiveness in our worship. And the most common physical expression is singing, and that remains consistent in many praise settings. But there are numerous other physical expressions mentioned in the text. Just check out this list. Clapping, bowing, kneeling, lifting hands, shouting, dancing, standing in awe are also mentioned when it comes to praising God. I was joking with my wife. I just said, I'm just going to... Stand in, stand in awe. But there are those moments, right, where you're singing in worship, right, and the, 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 you just you, um, you take a moment just to breathe. It's just you and God, and, and, and you just, you're just in awe of all His goodness. I, I think we, we can relate to that. It's, and I want to read another section from Bob Coughlin's book because I really grew to appreciate his balance uh, in, in his view of praise. And this is taken from a section called Leading Your Church to God-Honoring Expressiveness. And it says this, All kinds of questions emerge. How much physical, physical expression is too much? How much can we encourage physical responsiveness without feeling like a cheerleader? What if a church is reserved, conservative, and unemotional? How do you move a congregation to broader physical expressions in response to God's glory? And then he offers some guidelines and shares, t- shares this, teach about the appropriateness and the limitations of physical expression. And, and it says, God created our bodies to glorify Him. The Greek and Hebrew words we most often translate as praise and worship contain the idea of bending over or bowing down. If we are to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then that certainly includes the bodies that He has given us. Some Christians are simply unaware that physical responsiveness to God in worship is encouraged and modeled throughout Scripture. Various physical actions can bring God glory, including clapping, singing, bowing, kneeling, lifting hands, shouting, playing instruments, dancing, and again, standing in awe. And he gives all the scriptural references for those. These expressions don't have to be evidence every time we gather. But neither should we insist that these expressions were cultural and can be ignored today or that, we can't, or that we can observe them spiritually. And then he says, I'm shouting in my heart. The crucial question is this. Is there any physical expression of worship that God has given us in Scripture that I've never displayed? And if so, Why? Singing, shouting, dancing, lifting hands, bowing, kneeling, all of these and others can honor God when done from a heart as an expression of gratefulness for God's grace. And they should be an overflow of the worship we give to God throughout our daily lives. However, physical responsiveness alone is no sure sign that biblical worship is happening. People have been exuberant in corporate worship while living in adultery. Some Christians exhibit little physical expression on Sundays, but have a profound love for the Savior, an exemplary life, and through knowledge of script and a thorough knowledge of Scripture. I so appreciated his, his balanced perspective. And I want to share just a personal testimony. This is, this is just me sharing what, 
my experience with, with praise and worship. After I got saved up in Anchorage, Alaska, um, I, I attended a church that I would say was very active and, and expressive in its worship. And there was a lot of clapping and um, a lot of people who um, lifted up hands when, when they praised God. Okay. And um, I was there for a few years and then uh, the Lord led me to seminary. And that involved me changing churches. And um, everyone can figure out which church that I ended up at because I attended the master's seminary. And so when I moved to that church, I didn't clap anymore. And I didn't raise my arms anymore when I, I worshiped. And I should say arm, by the way, because I'm a disabled pastor. My left shoulder is like trash from football, so I can only raise it like that high. So that's why when you see me, if I ever raise my arm, I raise my right arm. Because my left arm just, don't ask me to change the light bulb or ceiling. It'll help you with your ceiling fan. Okay, but, um, I, you know, I was, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about what changed. And it wasn't that I was, I, I wasn't uncomfortable doing that so much as I was uncomfortable in the environment that, that, that I went to. And, and so, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. So I just kind of just stayed that way. And then this is interesting because then after um, I took my, my first associate pastoral role and went to Hickory, North Carolina, um, I again ended up in a ministry that um, was very expressive in worship again. And, and raised arms, um, raised our arms up when we praised God and clapped. And we even had some, we had one lady that I think had to tone it down, <laughs> like jumping on the stage. But it was, it was, you know, it was a shepherding thing, it wasn't. Um, but, you know, what's interesting, and then now I find myself here back at Cornerstone, Okay. And I, I really don't know what the culture is because you guys will notice that I sit up front, so I don't see necessarily what's going on behind me, okay? Okay? But, but can I just share something straight from my heart to yours? When you worship, I just want you to be free. And when we talk about the ministry pillar of this church, we want you to be free when you worship God. And what happens is freedom disappears when we take our eyes off Him. Freedom disappears when we become uh, cognizant of the person to our left or to our right or the people behind us and what they might think, right? It disappears. It takes away that freedom. And I want it to exist. I want it to be real, right? And so if there's one takeaway, one point of, you know, just as we consider this and the application that we can draw out just to have, um, just to have a, a heart-to-heart moment with, with God, just talking about how, how I worship Him, how I physically express my worship. And in this book, it was so amazing because he, he talked about 
um, the reality that when his kids run to him, he, he gets down on his knees and he opens his arms up to, to receive him. And when his favorite team scores the winning touchdown, he jumps up and he throws his arms up and he cheers. And when somebody does something heroic and that he's, he's really encouraged by, he claps and applauds for him, right? Bob Coughlin was talking about that. But then sometimes when it comes to worship, when it comes to, to the, 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 the one that we worship, when the, the one that we praise, the one who is awesome, the one who deserves everything, right? We can, we can shrink. We can, we, we can crawl back down. And it, it is a fear of man. It is a... And not everybody opens wide their arms to their children. Not everybody gets down on a knee. Not everybody goes crazy when a touchdown is scored. And so there is, there is personality in that. And, and there's a way that God, it doesn't, you know, I, 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 next week when we have worship or when we have a communion, I don't want to, you know, I'm going to look back and see every arm's up. Um, pray, praise the Lord. That, that's, that's not what I'm saying. I, I want you to be free. Whatever that looks like for you. And to, to meditate on that. And I, I came across my, my best friend, George, who um, the elders and, and um, uh, Chris and Jonathan and Albert were able to meet him as well at Shepherd's Conference. I do have a best friend. He's Korean. His name's George Hyun. Hyun is the correct, correct, correct pronunciation, spelled the same way. Okay? And he sent me this, um, this blog post from Tim... Chalice. And I want to share it with you because I think his experience will connect with, with our hearts. Last weekend, I enjoyed participating in the Ligonier Ministries National Conference, both as a blogger and an observer. It was a joy to gather with almost 5,000 other Christians so that we could spend three days focusing on the holiness of God. This marked my third time going to the conference, and each one has proven valuable to my knowledge of God and my love for Him. This one may well have been my favorite, at least when I think back to the speakers and their messages, and I would encourage you to find and purchase the conference audio, as I know you will be blessed. There's one feature of this conference that always jumps out at me. Interpretation services for the deaf. Of course, this is not the only conference that offers this service, and if you've ever been to a major conference, you may well have seen Chuck and Nancy Snyder or another set of interpreters doing their work in the front of the auditorium. It is one of my pleasures, a guilty pleasure perhaps, to occasionally pause during singing to watch the deaf believers sign or sing their praises to God. So interesting, the little play on that word too, sign and sing, just... For some reason, I always find it tremendously moving. I don't know exactly why it is that I'm so moved and sometimes even brought to tears by watching these believers praise God in their own way. I want to be careful not to romanticize deafness, realizing, of course, that deafness, as with any physical condition or affliction, is a result of man's fall into sin and the kind of condition that Jesus healed while he was on earth. It is a condition that we will be fully and finally cured when we go, in to, be in his, go to be in his presence. Isaiah chapter 35, the prophet writes of just such a day. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. What a, jo- what a day that will be. I wonder though if their praises so move me because I see them using their whole bodies to offer praise to God and in so doing they seem to have found a kind of freedom that few of us feel. 
We are all accustomed to singing praises to God with our lips. But as I looked around during one of the occasions that we worship God with music, I saw a lot of people singing joyfully, but doing so while standing stock still. But up at front were two rows of Christians singing for joy with their hands, their lips, and their whole bodies. Perhaps no sound came from their lips, but praise came from their hearts and expressed itself through their bodies. Time after time, when I've gone to conferences and paused to watch these brothers and sisters worshiping, I've seen this unique expression of praise. Every time, it has been a tremendous encouragement to me. While I was watching them praise God, I began to think how much they must anticipate that great day when their ears will be unstopped and they will at last be able to enjoy the music they have been worshiping to, when they will be able to hear the voices of the ones they love, and when they will be able to hear the words of their Savior as he says, well done, good and faithful servant. But then I realized that I was standing still as I brought my gift of praise to God, worshiping with my mouth, but giving little other outward evidence of my joy for all that God has done and for all that God is. And I wondered, in heaven, will they be more like us, or will we be more like them? My guess is that we'll probably meet somewhere in the middle. I just thought that was powerful, encouraging. We want our church to be a praising church. And there's a last point, and... Um, it's actually not a point. It was actually just brought in for application for you to consider when it says our passion for praising. And it's really a consideration of the earlier three points that we've talked about. And our church has a unique opportunity to write its testimony to the Lord on how we praise Him and how we worship Him and what that is, is going to be like for our church. And as we shared this morning, as we talked about the ministry that takes place and how encouraged we are as elders for the team that blesses us and serves us so faithfully week after week, we want to do all that we can to to bless them and, and strengthen them and to encourage them. We really, really do. And no matter what aspect of praise that takes place, whether it's in children's ministries student ministries, in a care group setting, at a retreat, at a conference. We want it to be real. And we want it to be free. We want it to be an activity of glorifying God in His presence with our voices and our hearts. And Revelation 19, verses 5 and 6 says this, And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you His bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great. Verse 6, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And in many ways, our worship that takes place here is a small rehearsal for where we're headed, right? We all get that. This is, this is, this is just preparation. It's, it's, it's going to be powerful, and it's going to be corporate worship that we offer together forever. Well, 
I hope that this pillar encourages your heart and that it blessed you just to consider the reality of how God might use it to uplift and support the ministries of our church. In just a few moments, we're going to prepare to receive the Lord's table together and we'll have an opportunity to praise God as a church by singing a couple more songs. But please uh, bow your heads and let's pray and we'll prepare to receive communion. Gracious Father, we um, are blessed, so blessed to look to your word again to illuminate our path. And Lord, we want to see you be exalted in our church. And I pray, Father, that the sacrifice your son would encourage our hearts to sing that your work continued work in sustaining us as your creation would encourage our hearts to sing that the communicable and incommunicable attributes that we ran through so quickly that really in many ways fell so short of honoring just the reality of your person and who you are and that you're real and that it's true that our lives are going to be but a vapor and that we're going to stand in your presence to to worship you. And so, Father, I just pray that you would prepare our hearts now to celebrate this special time of communion, this special unique expression of remembering the sacrifice that was made for our sin and the righteousness that was imputed to our account. And we want to take it in a worthy manner and we ask, Father, that you would have us just reflect and look to ourselves. Is there sin that continues to reside in besetting sin that we're we're not forsaking and that we continue to embrace and we don't want to take communion in an unworthy manner and so we just ask Father that you would help us just to have this time just even to reflect and Lord we do want to praise you thank you for the ways that you have allowed there to be a variety of instruments and gifted people at our church to lead us in that regard And I pray, Father, that as we take what we've heard this day, that you'll allow us as well to consider our own expressions in worship and not be influenced because of man, but that our hearts would just reflect physically our love for you, our passion for you. Because you are, as Romans 4, Revelation 4.11 says, worthy to receive the glory, worthy to receive the honor, worthy to receive the the power. We just praise you for that. And so, Lord, we commit the remainder of this service to you. We ask that you'll allow this time of communion to honor you, to bless your name. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.